is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in this week for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman, longtime politician versus longtime businessman. Karen Bass and Rick Caruso have separated themselves from the rest of the pack in the race for mayor of L.A., and it looks like they'll be the uh, final two candidates remaining following Tuesday's primary election. Now, we did talk to Bass, you may remember, last week, and now this time we're going to go in-depth with Rick Caruso to find out why he says he should be mayor. That's coming up later in the show. Monkeypox, apparently here. L.A. County has reported its first presumptive case. Now, this comes following an outbreak in Europe and cases reported on the East Coast. So, yeah, that's the question, should we worry? And another mass shooting, this time in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The shooter was a man again. So we're going to look into why you hardly see a mass shooting case that involves a woman. Gas prices show no signs of slowing down on the war in Ukraine shows no signs of ending soon. All of that is raising concerns of a possible energy crisis that we haven't seen since the 70s. We go in-depth. More and more people are holding off on retirement now because of inflation. And the U.K. starts a big four-day-long celebration and party, the Platinum Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth, marking 70 years as queen. We will take you to London later on in the show. Imagine doing any job for 70 years? I know. Even I mean, being alive once upon a time for 70 years <laughs> know, is an accomplishment. But doing the same job, wow. Uh, okay, we start, though, with monkeypox. Probably, possibly, maybe here in L.A., but also the White House, by the way, has just said the COVID vaccine for kids younger than five could be available as soon as the 21st of this month. Now, that is pending FDA approval. Dr. Peter Katona is a clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us again. Let's start Thank with you the for having me. let's start with the monkeypox uh, presumptive case in LA. So of course, you know, when people hear hear about cases in Europe or even on the East Coast, they kind of you know, I suppose say to themselves, Well, it's not happening here. Well, now it may be happening here. Should they be concerned? It's a mild degree of concern. This, you know, the the real important agents that spread in a way that makes us very alarmed are the respiratory spread of things like COVID and flu. This is more of a contact spread, where you have to contact body fluids or contact sores to spread. So you need a, a direct evidence of something happening to be able to spread this. It's not in the air causing asymptomatic disease like COVID does. So it's a concern, but it's not as much of a concern as some of these other viruses. How deadly is monkeypox? Very minimally deadly. There are two claves or strains of this that have been identified from the 2003 prairie dog outbreak in the upper Midwest. And the one from West Africa, which it looks like is this particular case, has maybe a 2% 2% mortality. The, the the other strain from the Democratic Republic of the Congo several decades ago is more deadly and more serious, but this looks like it's the less serious one. So it's not very lethal at all. What are the uh, leading theories, if there are any, uh, on whether or not this particular virus has in any way changed? Because uh, you know the case you just mentioned before in the U.S. was not nearly as widespread as this seems to be. So is something different happening? It's a very good question, and we really don't know the answer to that. Uh, This is a DNA virus, which seems to mutate a little bit less 
than the RNA viruses like flu or, or COVID or coronaviruses. So yes, it could have mutated some, but mutated to become airborne or mutated to become much more infectious is statistically very unlikely. This is more of people having contact. There seems to be a, a lot of cases in, in, in men who have sex with men, for example. Not that it's a sexually transmitted disease, but there's a lot of physical contact of lesions when there's sexual contact. Okay, doctor, it looks like we're about three weeks away uh, from an approved COVID vaccine for kids younger than five. We know by now that the virus does not have a severe impact on uh, children particularly that young. So if you would, please outline the necessity for children that young getting the COVID vaccine. Well, first of all, kids get infected. You know, it's estimated that 75% of all kids have been infected since the beginning of COVID. And kids can get long COVID. They can also get an immune consequence of COVID. So they don't get infected with significant disease as much as adults do, but they do get infected and they can get very sick. And they can also be silent transmitters of the disease. So there's a lot of reasons why vaccinating these young kids is important. And this is the last age group that we're going to have vaccines for uh, in the near future. Okay, that is Dr. Peter Katona, a clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, as always, thank you. The uh, country just went through yet another mass shooting. A man killed four people at a medical center in Tulsa yesterday, including a surgeon. And that followed the mass shootings in Uvalde, Buffalo, and Laguna Woods, all four committed by men. In fact, you rarely ever see women involved in a mass shooting, which raises Sort of an interesting question. And to help us, I hope, answer that is Dr. Park Dietz, who's a forensic psychiatrist. He's testified, by the way, in some of the highest profile criminal cases in this country's history. Doctor, thanks for uh, being with us. So uh, there have been, you know, I looked through uh, some uh, recent and not so uh, recent history in this country. There's a handful, almost literally, of women involved in shootings that would be defined classically as, quote, mass shootings, but the numbers are are paltry by far when compared to men. Why? Um, well, you're correct. It's about 2% uh, of the mass shooters who are female if we uh, consider shootings in public places with four or more murder victims. The why is a very interesting issue. The conventional wisdom on this is that females are less aggressive um, and that's used to explain why most violent crimes are committed much more often by men than by women. But there are exceptions, such as the killing of infants or the killing of elders who are dependent on the caretaker. Those are more commonly done by women. Gender stereotypes may play a part, too. For example, women being seen as nurturing, men as strong, but another explanation that I'd offer is that mass murder is less fashionable for women than it is for men. Less fashionable? Yes. In particular, suicidal, angry women don't have as many mass murdering role models as suicidal, angry men. So copycat crimes are less likely. And this is because mass media and social media haven't marketed mass murder to women as the solution to life's problems. 
nearly as much as they've marketed it to men as a way to get famous and change the world. A common thread with many of these killers is a deep degree of social isolation. Is that something that is more associated with men than it is women? Well, social isolation is associated with several different mental disorders, everything on the schizophrenia spectrum, um, paranoia, and those do affect men uh, somewhat more than women. But I don't think that would really be the explanation. So so if I'm getting what you're saying, you're uh, suggesting that if, uh, for example, in the few cases where women were involved in shootings, if the media paid a lot more attention to that than I suppose they do and played it up more for whatever reasons that media play these stories up for, uh, that we might end up seeing more women actually take part in mass shootings because they would then have a, a sort of perverse role model? Yeah, in part. But, I mean, it's the entire um, masculine portrayal of aggression that accounts for men feeling that if I'm going to commit suicide and there are people I'm angry at or types of people I'm angry at, why not do it in a blaze of glory? That's a pretty masculine thing to do. And that's what's in the heads of the people who do this. Uh, it was actually in the mind of the only female mass killer I've examined, a woman named Sylvia Segrist, who did a mass shooting at a shopping mall. And she was very much like the male mass murderers I've seen in that she was angry at the world. She suffered from schizophrenia. Um, they are not all mentally ill, but she was. And uh, her anger at the world had her behaving in ways that displayed indiscriminate anger toward everyone. She tried to enlist in the armed forces, hoping she could become a sniper so she could be a better mass murderer when the time huh. came. Huh. And it seems like uh, you know, boys and men, they, they glorify gun use to begin with. You know, video games, just any kind of recreational gun use, there's sort of a machismo attached to it, and that has to factor into it. Well, and that's also a gender stereotype that boys will gravitate more to guns as toys and girls more to dolls, but it's not entirely true, of course. I think um, the fact that the fashion today is for mass murder with firearms in this country more than in other countries where vehicles and cutting instruments are used more often for mass murder does play a part in this because on the average, men are more familiar and have greater access to firearms than women. But that's not the whole explanation either. This is a, a pattern of behavior that plays out over and over in very similar ways that springs from anger and suicidality. Nobody commits a mass murder who isn't willing to die that day, and half of them do. Either they kill themselves or the police shoot them. And there are other fashions for women to commit suicide. This isn't near the top of their list, whereas for angry men, it is. Huh, huh. 
Okay. Forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz. Uh, Dr. Dietz, thank you. And a little bit later in the show, Rick Caruso will join us in the final half hour to explain how he plans to fix Los Angeles if he becomes the city's next mayor. All right now, gas prices keep going up and up. OPEC and its oil-producing allies have said they'll boost production in July and August. It comes as some experts in the energy sector worry we could see an oil crisis that's similar to what happened in the 1970s. Sean Hyatt follows the oil and energy markets and is a professor of management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business. Uh, professor, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell me if OPEC's going to boost production in the summer, like they say, is that really going to help our gas prices at all? Well, first of all, let's talk about the boosting of that production. That is actually just a quota or a goal number, and it is essentially a pro rata number shared by all member participants, meaning that everyone gets a proportional increase. The problem with that goal of an extra 200,000 barrels per day is that there are only two member countries that have the capacity to increase more, and that's Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So that larger number is actually not going to be fulfilled over the next 90 days. So that's kind of a negative. Um, the second question of like, will gasoline prices continue to go higher? Yes. In fact, we are facing a major oil supply cliff that will happen right after Election Day on November 1st. Okay, why after Election Day? Two major things happen. One, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve hits the minimum amount that's required by the International Energy Association, which is 90 days of petroleum, right? So right now the Biden administration is selling 1 million barrels of oil a day. That stops in October, towards the end of October. At the same time in October, right around there, towards the end of October, the European Union will enact its ban on Russian oil, uh, seaborne oil, Um, from Russia, that's 1.6 million barrels that at that point we'll need to find new customers. So there's a possibility at that point, we'll see 2.6 million barrels of oil. I mean, this is the worst case scenario off the market, which could cause oil prices spike 150, $170 per barrel. Is OPEC sensing a uh, demand crunch because everyone's having to pay these higher prices? Because right now they're raking in the cash because oil is so expensive and they're the beneficiaries of that. But their decision to boost production, they is that them seeing that they're going to get diminishing returns because people just aren't going to fill up anymore? Well, so far, the data haven't shown any, in the United States at least, demand destruction, as we like to call it, meaning that people are pulling back on fuel consumption. It appears that perhaps this is a necessity for transportation needs. And uh, we'll probably see other areas of the sector where where consumption will pull back. So do you foresee a time in the uh, not too distant future when we go back, as we mentioned in the lead into the that time in the 70s, when uh, people used to have to, you know, if they if their license plate ended with one number, they could get gas on, I think it was like Monday and Wednesday. And if it ended in a different number, it was Tuesday and Thursday, that kind of thing. I don't know if we'll actually have a complete shortage of oil on the market, but what we will see is massive prices. It is quite possible that in California, when October rolls around, that fuel will be seven and a half, seven dollars seventy-five cents a gallon. And if this massive supply crunch, which occurs in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, do not kind of compensate for that, it's possible it could go to two hundred dollars a barrel, which would mean double-digit gallon, meaning ten dollars a gallon fuel. At that point, I believe demand destruction would kick in, and people would just quit traveling. Maybe take a few more days off work. 
What about domestic production? I know that could be a, a major issue come election time with if you have some people who promise to, hey, let's let's drill some more. Would that help at all at this point? So, so far, the United States production has remained pretty constant since January at an all-time high at 11.9 million barrels per day of production. It hasn't changed. And I don't see them changing at all for two major reasons. One, the Biden administration, um, regulatory hurdles that they have for pipeline building. So far, FERC, which handles natural gas pipelines in particular, um, hasn't approved gas pipelines. They've approved two since this entire Biden administration has taken office, right? Plus, we have the, the sense, the signals from the administration that they want the oil industry to essentially be out of business in the next two years by the end of Biden's term. Remember, for fr- hydraulic fracturing, you have at least a five to seven year horizon for an investment on your return on investment. And for deep sea water, which is much lower and, and can produce for much longer, that's 15 to 20 years. So right now, there are no incentives for the oil and gas companies to invest plus the regulatory costs, right? So what I do not see enhance much um, more uh, production on the U.S. side, at least through the elections. Okay. Sean Hyde, oil industry analyst and professor at the USC Marshall School of Business. Professor, thank you. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The parties and celebrations have already started across the pond in the United Kingdom to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth. She joined members of her family on the balcony of Buckingham Palace in London earlier today as 70 planes flew overhead. Now, the 70 planes marked the 70-year reign of the Queen, and that is the longest of any king or queen in the country's very long history. With us to talk about the uh, four days of celebrations is Mark Borkowski, renowned publicist and author who is in London. Mark, thanks for joining us. That's quite all right. Hi, guys. So, uh, you know, we were remarking before you joined us about uh, it's a I guess it's a great gig being queen of, of, the, of England, but 70 years on any job. How does she do it? How did she do it? She's from a different generation, frankly. I mean, this is a this is a, a woman that was born before the Second World War, um, who has held the monarchy together through through stoicism and a and a phenomenal sense of duty. And she um, remains very close to the British people and the Commonwealth uh, heart uh, because she just gets on with it. No fuss. Um, and uh, no, of course, there's a huge amount of sort of celebrations happening in and around the country now with street parties celebrating it. But most of that is because they find this woman remarkable um, because of you know service she gives this country and how she brings us all together. And if you think that these 70 years, you know, culturally, historically, socially, what she has seen um, and what she's presided over um, has been something extraordinary, and I and I and I think that um, you know she's now in you know in the autumn, well, in the winter of her years, and uh, we all uh, appreciate her more. Um, she's she's seen the death of her husband, who was her who was her confidence and her strength, and yet she still carries on. And of course, now we're seeing a change. Uh, we're, we're we're beginning to see. Um, you know, her son and her grandson now taking more of the ceremonial duties. 
and we feel uneasy about that because I'm not sure what this country will do um, uh, when the Queen passes. It will have a, a profound effect um, on us all because of, of just you know how amazing she is to um, to, to lead this country and um, the optimism against you know some of the more challenging times. She is she's been radiant. Well, a very small percentage of the world's population knows a world in which Elizabeth wasn't queen. So, as you mentioned, it's going to be quite a jarring experience moving away from that era, and a lot of people, frankly, won't be ready for it. Oh, I don't think people are ready for it. And we've seen, obviously, the, the, the recent turmoil um, of the sort of younger generation, you know, the sort of Harry and Meghan story. Um, has been quite preeminent here. You know, the Netflix story, The Crown, you know, many people see that as a documentary, not a drama. All these things have sort of made us look back and, and think about things. If, if you think about um, Princess Diana and the profound effect that she had on the royal family in, in jolting it into a new age, um, the divorce, um, you know, Charles marrying Camilla, um, there has been, you know, the animus cerebris, as she talked about, you know, the, the, the fire at Windsor Castle um, and, you know, conflicts um, that we've seen. She, she, if, if you think culturally what has happened around the world and particularly in this country, you know, um, since the 50s, I mean, she came to the throne when, we're, when this country was still involved with rationing. Um, oh. And, you know, it was a post-war generation who were, were beaten up um, by that, uh, by the Second World War. Mark, I, I, she, I, I want to interrupt you because, sorry for interrupting you, but I, I wanted to get to something before we ran out of time because she has, has uh, decided not to attend, as I understand it, uh, one of the key events tomorrow because it's a four-day celebration, right, uh, for the uh, Jubilee, uh, because she, I guess, had some discomfort is the way I understand it was reported uh, from Buckingham Palace. Is that raising concern there? No, I think there's been a n number of ceremonial occasions she has not attended. Um, and I think she wants to stand. I don't think she would ever contemplate ever being in a wheelchair. Um, she was gripping the stick today at the, at the fly past. I think she wants to be remembered as this sort of, this, this, this woman who stood there, not in a, in a wheelchair. And I think she's managing her time, managing this, this thing. You know, the woman is, you know, in her, in her late, late nineties, you know, it's, um, it's remarkable that she can even do this. And she's, she, she isn't as fit as she wants to be, um, but I think she wants to ensure that her, her, her presence, you know, and uh, the, the public spectacles is, is as a queen as we know it, not as someone who may be, you know, probably frailer than she has been in many a year. Renowned publicist and author Mark Borkowski talking to us live from London. Mark, thank you. Okay, if you're a little older and still working, you might have retirement on your mind. Maybe you're just counting the days until you can sleep in and enjoy life. Nice, right? But, well, if you're counting the days, you're counting your money, too. And you might notice inflation is making everything cost more. A survey by the Nationwide Retirement Institute found about one in eight Gen Xers and baby boomers say they've postponed or considered postponing retirement due to inflation. We're joined live by Mark Rylance, a financial planner based in Newport Beach. And Mark, uh, 
If you are, you know, coming up on retirement and all of a sudden inflation's taking just a huge chunk out of what you got, you've got to be thinking, well, maybe I could stick it out another year or two. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing that a lot with uh, with clients. We we probably ran me personally about four or five different clients that were about ready to retire. And after running numbers and such, we saw, you know, about half did, half didn't. And the ones that that uh, chose to continue to work had plans that were stress tested. You know, if if we're talking like the ninety eight percent probability of success, uh, they could go ahead and retire. But ones with more, uh, I guess, borderline ones, you know, we've suggested that they continue to work until, you know, inflation is a huge factor, but also the investment markets, you know, because this year is a very unusual year, as many know, that the stock market's down as well as the bond market. So there's not many places to, to hide as far as your investment returns as well. I, I would imagine that to some degree it depends also on the kind of job you do, right? I mean, if you have a very physically demanding job, uh, like it or not, you may need or want to retire. But if you have the kind of job where perhaps you can work at home some, most, all of the time, or it's not particularly demanding physically, then you could elect to work a lot longer, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, retirement is changing over the last, uh, you know, I guess five years or so is people are you know, planning to make work optional instead of just flat out retiring and doing nothing. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people do have other sources of income um, to help them kind of ease, ease the way, especially if they have one of those physical jobs that they have to retire, you know, just because they just can't do it anymore. If people are nearing retirement uh, and they feel like they need to make some sort of adjustment to their investment strategy, uh, given what's been happening, uh, is there any sound strategy right now? Because, I mean, investments are getting uh, hit across the board here. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, the, you know, the ideal thing is to plan ahead before this happens, you know, um, and we tried to do that as best we could with, with clients trying to, uh, you know, help them determine what return they need to achieve their goals, what risks they're willing to take, you know, making sure they're diversified. But as I know, as we all know, there's people that didn't plan ahead, so now you're in it. And so there's really, you know, the I think the most important thing to do is not panic and don't get on the fear and greed roller coaster. And certainly don't sell all your investments, you know, uh, you know at the bottom. But, you know, so we like to say stay invested, but I know it's hard. Um, there are some things that, that, that we do that the, um, the do-it-yourself person can do um, that's easily is make sure you have a rebalancing strategy. So if your stocks go down 10%, um, you know, you might have a strategy to, you know, to get in there and buy stocks at a lower cost. Uh, same thing as if, if you have gains, you can trim gains and, and, and circulate into things with losses. A second thing that we're doing a lot, which is great, and this is kind of making lemonade out of lemons, is if you have taxable accounts, not 401k retirement accounts, but actual taxable accounts, if you have losses in some of the holdings that you've bought, um, we do what's called tax loss harvesting when you can sell the investment at a loss and then buy something else so you're still invested. But what it, what it does is it books that loss so you can offset that against capital gains in the future. As long as you don't violate what's right. called a wash sale rule. Um, so that's a kind of a guaranteed, you know, save 15% on capital gains federally and then plus the state tax, you know, 9 or 10%. So I'm wondering, uh, Mark, in our last segment, we were talking to somebody in London about Queen Elizabeth who's celebrating 70 years 
on the throne. 70 years of doing the same job, never retired, apparently doesn't have any plans to retire. Mm-hmm. Have you ever come across anybody who has done the same job for 70 years? I can't say I have. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's me, but I don't think I'm going to live to 120. <laughs> yeah, because I do like what I do. All right. That's Mark Rylands, financial planner based in Newport Beach. And uh, thank you, Mark. And welcome back to KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping's in this week for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The race for mayor of L.A. is basically coming down to two candidates, Congresswoman Karen Bass and business mogul Rick Caruso. That will likely be made official following next Tuesday's primary election. Caruso is among the most prominent business people in the city, but he has no political experience here. That doesn't seem to bother many voters, though. According to recent polls, order the celebrities who have endorsed him thus far, people like Snoop Dogg and Kim Kardashian. So with us now in studio is uh, Rick Caruso. Welcome to In-Depth and, and welcome to maybe one of the only properties you don't own yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Well, thank you, Charles. Thanks for having me here. You're welcome. So uh, here's where I want to begin with you. Uh, I, I get your campaign message about you, you want to declare an emergency if you're elected mayor. You want to clean up the city. I'm originally from New York, and I've covered the mayors in New York City. I've covered mayors in Boston, even Chicago to some degree. As you know, in those cities, being mayor is a very powerful position. There's much that a mayor can do in those cities. Right. By design, Los Angeles has a weaker system for mayor. It was improved a little bit, I think, when they did some uh, charter reform. But it's not the same, not the same power as you would have if you were, let's say, mayor of New York City. Can you really do what you want to do, given all of the constraints that are on the office of mayor of the city of Los Angeles? Well, I believe so. If I didn't believe so, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, You know, I'm not looking for a new career, and I've got a really nice day job. But I also served under three mayors. I served under Tom Bradley. I served under Dick Reardon, and I served under Jim Hahn. So I do know how the government works from being inside City Hall. I also know how it fails. And I also know the power the mayor does have. you got to remember, every city department reports directly to the mayor. And the mayor appoints every commissioner. Gets confirmed by the city council. The Some of the city departments, Department of Water and Power, largest public utility in the country. The Harbor Department, one of the largest harbors in the world. The airport, one of the largest airports in the world. Gives the mayor enormous authority to move the needle here. But let's talk about what the problems are. We've got spiraling crime. LAPD reports directly to the mayor. Now, you're always going to have to work with the city council, but I've built my business on figuring out how to lead, get people motivated, reach across the table, reach across the aisle and find common ground. I couldn't have built my business without it. And I'm going to bring that same skill set to City Hall, and I'm very confident I'm going to be able to reduce crime like I did 20 years ago with Bill Bratton. And we're going to tackle the encampments on the street and help the homeless. They're living in terrible conditions. It's inhumane what our current leadership has allowed. And then we've got to clean up City Hall. The corruption is rampant. And uh, I know how to change cultures of large organizations, and I'm actually looking forward to doing that. You're a Democrat, running as a Democrat. You also are a self-avowed centrist. That's uh, more than any other identification. That still, in Los Angeles, puts you to the right of most, if not all, of the city council. So 
how do you bridge that gap? And do we have a cohesive and cooperative city government, given the ideological divide? Well, I don't think there's an ideological divide because I'm not an ideologue. And what I'm looking for are practical solutions to complex problems. And again, I built my whole career doing that. And I've been, you know, successful in bringing really smart, talented people together around the table to solve problems. That's what I'm going to do. That's what a chief executive does. And I think this city needs a mayor that has chief executive skills. So the problems we have now and what we're seeing in the polling, it's across the city. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your culture is, what your demographic is, what your wealth is. It is all about people are worried about the homeless, they're worried about crime, and they're fed up with corruption, and they feel unheard uh, in this city, which is frustrating communities around the city. As a business person, would you hire somebody to work on a project for you who had no experience doing the thing you're hiring them to do? Would you? Yes or no? Well, uh, no, but the good news is I've had experience <laughs> in running complex organizations and running city departments. But not the same as running a city. And, and that's one of the, one of the, the barbs that, that people, when they look at you, will throw at you. And they do throw at you. They say, yeah, he's a successful businessman, no doubt about it. But running a city the size of Los Angeles is so complicated with so many different interest groups that shouldn't you have somebody in that office who has done it before at some level? Well, we've had people in that office that have done it before and have failed miserably, and that's why we've got the problems we have. So I think what people are looking for is a fresh point of view. I think people are looking for executive skills. We've had legislators in the office. Uh, the legislation skills are not skills that transfer to being a mayor. And these are really complex problems. And I've dealt with complex problems. I've been the head of USC. I had to change the culture there, work very closely with my fellow trustees, change the leadership there. I've done this before. Is the job tough? Of course it's tough. Um, if it wasn't tough and complex, uh, frankly, I wouldn't be interested in it. Um, I enjoy that. And so I am very confident that given my background running LAPD and DWP, and my background in running a complex organization like USC, along with the leadership there, and building my own business, starting from a small business in town with one employee to a, a successful business, um, I have the skill set to make a difference in, in L.A. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Brian Ping. We're joined live in studio by business mogul and Los Angeles mayor candidate Rick Caruso. Rick, let's talk about your day one priority, which is the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles. You want to declare a state of emergency. Now, when I hear that, I think money. I think aid from Sacramento, Washington. But the city and the county have already devoted so much money, billions, toward this issue. And not getting the bang for our buck is that... Declaration, does it really get us anywhere or as far as reallocating the money that we're already spending a lot on? So it's a very good question. And what's happened in the city now is we're spending about a billion dollars a year on the homeless problem. More and more people, the population on the streets is growing. Um, the fastest growing population on the street are families. It's terribly sad. Uh, they're living in inhumane conditions and we're not making any progress. And part of the problem, there's lack of leadership, and there's also 15 different council districts that are approaching the problem differently. And you just can't solve a problem that way. 
And so the state of emergency is to bring the power to solve these problems in the mayor's office. I want to be held accountable, put together a team, work with the individual council offices, but have a cohesive strategic plan to solve the problem, which I do on my website at carusocan.com. And use the authority to actually move the needle on this problem, which I'm confident I can. We have a state of emergency today in the city because of the pandemic. So this isn't something new that we haven't done before. But I believe it needs to be done in order to hold the mayor accountable. So uh, if you become mayor and in the first term, hopefully you would succeed in doing the things you want. But if you don't, would you pledge right now that you would walk away from the job? You don't need the money. You've said that. Right. Listen, um, I want to be mayor because I want to make the change. If I can make the changes in four years, great. I make the changes in four years. If it takes eight years, it's going to take eight years. I'm committed to working for the city for a dollar a year. I have no special interests. I get to wake up every morning and say to myself, I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the residents of Los Angeles. Yeah, but I want to ask you something about that. You know, when you say that, that you're going to work for a dollar a year, you know, you're talking about your your uh, grandparents or uh, Came from the old country. You know? yep. My grandparents did, too. And they used to say, you get what you pay for. Do you really want to be a mayor that only makes a buck a year? I want to do the purity of the job of giving back to this community that's been so good to me and my family. And that's why I don't want to get paid for it. I've been given enough. I've been fortunate. I have been blessed. And I want to give back. And our family has a history giving back to this community. We've done it for three decades without accolades. We haven't wanted accolades or thanks. We've done it quietly. So it's in my blood to do it. And I feel very blessed that I can step away from my business. And with my family's support, I can go help the city that I love. And that is admirable, what you and your family have done. But at the same time, a lot of people going to the polls and voting in this election, they're thinking, what does he know about my day-to-day problems? You know, more and more people are living paycheck to paycheck. It's a problem, frankly, mm-hmm. that you don't have. So how can you – what do you tell these voters saying, look, I understand we're going through some painful times right now with uh, with inflation and all the other monetary problems out there. How, how do you connect and let them know, look, I'm, I'm not as detached as you might think I am to this? Well, I connect because, one, we've worked in the communities in South L.A. and Watson, East L.A. for – Three decades, like I said. We know the families. We support the families. We have education programs for the kids. We're working in the projects like Nickerson Gardens. All of these places where my kids have been working in, and we've done it in Parlos Ninos on Skid Row, the school. And listen, we started from very basic roots with grandparents in Boyle Heights that we talked about as immigrants. I do understand it. I also went through a pandemic that everything that I owned shut off. And every small business, we leaned in and got through. And our commitment to everybody was, we're going to get over the bridge together. And we did it together. Everybody I'm running against never had a reduction in their paycheck during COVID, never lost their government car, never lost their government staff, never had to worry about what was food putting on the table. I was working with my employees, my tenants, the retailers, the restaurateurs we do business with. I understand what it's like to have to run a business and raise a family in this city, probably more connected than most. You know, Rick, uh, when I came here to California, to L.A. in 94, um, I remember politicians then talking about how we needed to build more affordable housing. Yeah. That was 1994. Right. 
Here we are in 2022, and as you know, I mean, good luck finding affordable housing right. in the city of Los Angeles. It's just about impossible. What are you going to do? What can you do? You, you've got to reduce the cost of building in the city, and you've got to encourage more development and investment in the city. We are so overregulated. We have made it so difficult to do business in the city of Los Angeles. We've made it so expensive to do business in the city of Los Angeles that the investment to build is going to other cities, neighboring cities, and we're losing out. Same in businesses. We need to be supporting the small businesses in the city. Now, we can do it. You know, there's ways that I've come up with where DWP can go and lead put in the infrastructure, amortize it over 30 or 40 years so the person developing doesn't have the same upfront costs, use the full faith and credit of the city to help guarantee loans that are getting low-income housing built to reduce the cost of that housing. We're building housing. We, the city of Los Angeles, our leadership, at $800,000 a unit, where private enterprise is building the same unit for 200000 a unit. It shows lack of leadership. It shows waste it shows overregulation, and I want to stop that program, do an accounting. That's taxpayers' money. We should not be wasting taxpayers' money and do it more efficiently. I do know how to build. I do know how to run an operation and a business. And I'm going to bring that skill set to the city so we can get more housing built. Tell me what your um, relationships, if there are any, are uh, with the members of the council and the people that you're going to have to deal with on the day-to-day basis. Because... If you serve as mayor, you're going to hear the word no a lot. Are you prepared for that? And what are you going to do about that to you know, get done what you need to get done? Well, I have two council members endorsing me, John Lee and Joe Buscano. So that's a good start. I know most everybody on the council. I do know everybody on the council. And listen, we just got a project approved uh, about two and a half years ago up at Pacific Palisades. That's probably one of the most difficult places to build a project in the city, and we had a unanimous vote, and we have support by the community. So I do know how to reach across the aisle and across the table, and I'm going to be a good partner with the council members, and I'm also going to help them hit their priorities in their own council districts. We'll work together. If Karen Bass were to win, you guys know each other a long time. You've yes, worked, we do. You've, and you've worked together in the past. Yes. Could you work together with her if she becomes mayor, or would you kind of wash your hands, walk away, and say, eh, I lost, on with the other stuff? I'm, I'm dedicated to the future of the city, no matter who becomes mayor. Yeah, I talk to people all over the country, and they say, how are you, you know, living day-to-day and putting up with just the rampant crime in your city? Los Angeles has just become almost synonymous, sadly, with this uh, rising crime epidemic that we've seen, and uh, a lot of people just don't even feel safe walking down the street, a lot of the incidents that make national headlines, what needs to be done? I would imagine that's another day one priority for you. Yes. And it's going to be you know, something, you know, it's, a, it's a balancing act because there is such a thing as, you know, going too hard. And we saw the, the, the wrath of the perceived, you know, going too hard with enforcement a couple of years ago. How do you strike that balance? Well, I inherited a police department, LAPD, right after the Rodney King beating. And it was a terrible time in the city of Los Angeles, and crime was spiking. Jim Hahn asked me to be the commission president. And um, as the police commissioner, made a lot of changes. We changed the leadership. We reformed the department. We were under a federal consent decree at the time, hired a lot of officers, brought in Bill Bratton, and uh, we dropped crime 30%. So it can be done. We need to have more officers on the street. We're 500 short. My plan is to hire 1,500. And we need to start holding criminals accountable. 
But we also have to have community policing and create trust between LAPD and the communities we serve and do it the right way, that we're actually protecting and serving the community. So so before we give you a chance to wrap up, uh, I'm just curious because uh, if you're elected mayor, would you do what we have in the uh, the Grove, which you own? Would we have, like, piped-in Frank Sinatra music <laughs> playing throughout the entire city? <laughs> well, listen, what I want to do is I want to help the uh, the homeless get onto a better life and give them the services they need. And I want to I want to reduce crime in the city so it's more livable. I want to get the corruption out of City Hall. I think this is the greatest city in the world, and I love this city. And we've got the greatest future in the world. We just need to course correct, and it's going to take some tough decisions and some good leadership to do it. But I'm up for the job, and I'm excited about the opportunity to do it. Okay. That is uh, Rick Caruso. He is running for mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, Karen Bass, another one of the uh, top candidates we had in uh, last week. I believe uh, Kevin DeLeon, we're still trying to make efforts to uh, speak with him. But, of course, the election is Tuesday. And if you get 50% of the vote, there is no runoff coming up in November. But uh, there are a lot of candidates on the ballot still. There's uh, a lot of ways that uh, we could very well carry this over a few months from now. Did did you vote, Rick, already? No, not yet. I'm going to vote on Election Day. Who are you going to vote for? I'm going to probably vote for Rick Caruso. I would recommend everybody does that. But I would really encourage everybody. Breaking news. Encourage everybody to get out the vote. It's an important vote. Thank Thank you you very much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. Okay. You've been listening to KNX In-Depth. Charles Feldman. I'm Brian Ping.